All right, we're going to be um, in uh, chapter 2 of uh, Ephesians, um, and we're back in our What is Church series, and uh, we're in the second installment of it. So uh, verse 11 of chapter 2 of Ephesians is where we're going to pick up. Okay, and our, actually our text today is um, the rest of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. I'm not going to read all of that um, because we still need time for the message. Um, but uh, I'm going to read uh, down through the end of chapter 2 right now, okay? So we're going to start. And, and, you know, I often have you stand up for the reading. But again, this Ephesians stuff is just packed so tight. There's so much goodness and theology and stuff packed in here that I just really want you to focus on it. And, and again, if you have your scriptures with you, I'd really appreciate you taking them out. If you have a Bible, please bring it. If you don't have one, there's Bibles in the back. You're welcome to grab one. You're welcome to take one home with you um, and, and keep it. So we're in verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one. And he has destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Blessed be God's word. It's a good thing. So this passage starts off with one word there. What's the first word? First word in that passage that I read. Therefore. There's a hermeneutical principle for the word therefore. We talked about what hermeneutics are. Hermeneutics are how we read the Bible. We said there's three main principles in hermeneutics. One has to do with this is a a conversation with God. This is his word. He's talking to us. And so as he's talking to us, we need to get into a conversational space with him. It means we open with prayer. Every time that we're going into the word, we pray and ask the spirit to be present and communicating to us. So we open with prayer. The second thing is context. We understand what is this thing actually saying? what's it about you know what's it all about we understand the context and really get what's being said to these people here so we can understand the book for what it is and what's being said and the third is we apply it practically and we live it out and we allow it to come alive in our lives okay so the, the, we prayed and we opened up now we started reading reading the passage and it started with this word therefore and when you hear this word therefore there's a hermeneutical principle that we have to ask ourselves regarding the context what do we ask ourselves when we hear the word therefore 
What is it there for? Excellent. So anytime you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? It's referring to something else before it. It's saying there's a re because of this, 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 and this, or whatever, therefore this. And if you just all of a sudden go into the thing and don't understand the thing before it, then you miss the foundation of everything that it is that he's about to say. So what is the therefore? What's before it? Well, chapter 1 and the first 10 verses of chapter 2, in this scenario, particularly the first uh, 10 verses of chapter 2. Now, I'm not going to go and into great detail about all of that because that's what we spent our last message on. And so I'm just going to say this, that what our last message was about is we started off saying, what is church? And we said, church isn't all the stuff that we make. It's not your opinion of church or my opinion. It's not some, this uh, denomination's expression or, or this gathering of people here or this building there. It's none of that stuff. Church is one thing, very simply, church is Christ. That's what church is. It's the body of Christ on earth. And those of us who are in Christ can be church. We can be church if we're in Christ. But what we find is Galatians 2.20 tells us this, that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. So it's not me. I don't even live anymore. You know? But the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Jesus rose from the dead. I was buried with him. And when he rose up, we were risen with him. All that's left through the eyes of God the Father, what he sees is his Son. And he sees all of us as members of his son. And so the church is the body of Christ here on earth. So what is the church? It's Jesus. It's people in Jesus. It, Paul says it over and over again. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So if we are in Christ, we are the church. We are just people in Christ. Therefore, since we are no longer just our own unique identities, but we have become, we, we have been reborn in Christ. Since that's the case, therefore. Okay, that's the background. Now, what does he say? Therefore, since then, what is he saying? Well, he's saying, now my identity, the very core of who I am, has shifted. I'm no longer just Tim Deering. I'm a child of the living God. I'm a member of the household of God. I am a, I am a member of the body of Christ. So I'm, in the eyes of God, I am a part of Christ. You know, I, I'm seen through the resurrect, re resurrect, <laughs> resurrected, there it is, resurrected Jesus. Um, Help me out now. And um, so that's, that's who I am. And now because of that, it changes everything else. It changes all my other relationships. Now how I relate to you, how I relate to the world around me, everything has changed because my, I, the core of my identity has shifted. So what Paul's saying is, first he was talking about our relationship to Christ and, and uh, to be in the church. The church is people who are in Christ. But now he's talking about how that changes how we relate to one another. And he's talking about community and how we interface in community. And, you know, uh, we live, and you've heard me say this before, and you'll hear me say it again, we live in, I believe, one of the most independent cultures of our time, right here in southeastern Pennsylvania. I mean, the, 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 the great frontier of independence was America, right? You come to America to form independence, and we set up shop in Philadelphia and formed Independence Hall and signed a declaration of independence, and everything's about independence, you know? And we are an incredibly independent people. And those of you who aren't from this area, who have lived in other places and experienced other places and come back to the, and then come to this area, you feel like, whoa, this is... This area is very, very independent. Very independent. Those of you who were raised here might be like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. You know? And, uh, and who have been here your whole life, I have no idea what you're talking about. But we are, um, if you take the full gamut of humanity and, and put us on a scale of independence versus a, a real like communal people, we are a very, very independent people. 
very independent. And that shapes us, and it shapes our faith, and it shapes our interactions with each other. I want to give you a few examples. These are fictional examples of ways that, uh, that we interface with each other, okay? Um, and I'm not just talking about this area, but it, it, we'll, we'll contextualize it in this area. So first of all, there's this woman who is a brilliant woman, uh, just a real go-getter at work. She graduated top of her class with an MBA from University of Chicago. She is on point. She knows how to lead people. She knows how to get stuff done. She knows her way in and out of the whole corporate world. She's a team leader, let's say, at a pharmaceutical or at a uh, financial institution. Um, and she is, uh, the, her bosses always count on her to get stuff done. They're a great project. They always hand to her. She knows how to lead the team, organize it, get it done every time. She has a problem right now, though. And the problem is that there's this new person on her team. And this person doesn't really seem to care about work a whole lot. He's kind of goofy, you know, and uh, he, um, he just got the job because he knew somebody. He knew one of the execs in the company, and he ended up getting a job there. And work doesn't really mean much to him. He's not really interested in the mission of the company or whatever. He's just kind of punching the clock and getting paid, and uh, it's a real drag on the system. He didn't have that much education, and uh, he, he doesn't really concern himself with all of that. Now, this is what I want to ask you about this scenario. This woman when she thinks about herself in relation to this guy, how does she view herself in relation to him? Better, thank you, better. Yeah, she views herself as better. All right, now I wanna give you another scenario. There's this, there's this other person, okay, and, and this guy is, he's a real fun-loving guy. This is like a, a like just kind of one of those like, the party starts with this guy, you know? And the, he, he's in the neighborhood where he lives, their house is the place where everyone wants to come over, bring their kids, they hang out here, they have a blast, you know. There's a few toys laying around the yard, and there's like one of the shutters is kind of hanging loose. They never really got to it because they're so busy hanging out with everybody, having a good time. They're always having family over, friends over, and it's, it's just great, you know, and they really know how to enjoy themselves. He has a problem, though, and the problem is that they have these neighbors, and the neighbors are really well-to-do, and they're a little more inattentive than he is. Um, and they have a great home, and they have a beautiful car, and uh, they are wanting to upgrade their house at some point and wanting to sell. They're interested in their property value going up. And so every time this guy has people over, they come and knock on the door and say, hey, can you keep it down, and can you make sure that nothing gets on our side of the problem? You know? How does this guy view himself in relation to them? Better. Honestly? He's going to be, in his mind, this guy's going to be like, I know what life's about, you know? Life's about having fun and everything, and these guys are they're, they're buzzkills, you know? <laughs> and uh, they, don't, they, they, didn't get the, they didn't get the memo, you know? And, uh, and so in one scenario, this woman who's very efficient and doing things at work, you know, she, she considers herself better. And in this scenario, here's this guy who's having fun and, and having the relationships, and he considers himself better. Now, I want you to consider something, that the guy at work who's kind of like dragging in the mud, that's this guy over here at home who's having fun. And the neighbors over here who are a pain in the tail for him, that's the woman at work who's, who's kicking butt. And in one situation, one of them's the winner. And in the other situation, the other one's the winner. Life sometimes feels like a big competition. You know? It really does sometimes. We're tempted to think that life is about competition. We're told all the time that there's winners and there's losers. And all there is, is life's this big competition, is what, we're, is what we're programmed to think, and that we can define ourselves based on two questions. First of all, the first question is, are you winning or are you losing? 
Okay, are you winning in life or are you losing in life? And we all want to be winners. And why do we want to be winners? Because we see that the winners are the people who are valued. So there must be something special about the winners. So if you're considered a winner, well, then there's a value on us. And all of us have a deficit inside of us where we feel empty and we don't feel great about ourselves. All of us struggle at times with not feeling wonderful about ourselves. And so we would love to be a winner because in the eyes of people and certainly in the eyes of everything public we see, the winners are the ones who reveal that they have value. And so if we want a deeper sense of identity and security and a sense of significance, then we want to be considered winners. So we want to win. So the, one of the things that we are supposed to define ourselves according to the world. One of the ways we're supposed to define ourselves in this great competition is whether or not we're winning. Second thing is what game are you even playing? See, there's a whole nother question about, there's a bunch of different games. You see over here, this woman, she's playing the game of success and she wants to win and do well and get ahead and get a bigger house and get, uh, do well at work and be efficient. And this guy over here, he wants everyone to like him and he wants to have good friends and he wants to enjoy life and he wants to be the center of the, 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 you know, the uh, social scene and all of that. And he's winning here and she's winning here. But in both their situations, it's a complete clash because her rules and his rules don't match up with each other. You know, and we tend to, I, there's all sorts of camps and groups. There's all sorts of games. There's the, the game of beauty. There's the game of success. There's the game of wealth. There's the game of like, who's the best soccer mom. There's the game of like, you know, whatever it is, however we define ourselves and, and, and whatever game we're playing and there's a competition within it, but then those groups and those camps don't always interface. You know how um, a few years back, Philly decided to, to tear down Veterans Stadium and to build two separate stadiums. And it used to be that all the games, the, the Phil's games and the Eagles games in one stadium, right? And most cities used to have that and they're all kind of transitioning to getting two different stadiums. Every now and then I remember watching a football game and you'd see these guys playing football and they'd be running on a football field and they'd run across a, a baseball infield. You see that? Like the dirt of the infield was still there. Bob, you remember that, right? Yeah. So they'd run across the, the dirt infield. And as the, and I remember just thinking, like, I wonder what would happen if they played both games at the same time. Like, imagine if the World Series was playing and the Super Bowl was being played on the same field at the same time. Like, Albert Pujols is trying to crank one out at the same time that Tom Brady's trying to put one in the end zone. And there's, like, this clash, and they're running into each other, and the rules of the game don't match. It's not just who's going to win their game. It's which it's that these two different games are competing with each other. And that sometimes is what our world is like. There's all sorts of people competing within different games, but then there's all sorts of different rules in different games that are also competing all over the place. And that's like life in America. Well, it was also life when Paul wrote this because there was the Jews and there was the Gentiles. And they had completely different games. Okay, and there was winners and losers within each of their games, but they had completely different games. You see, for the, for the Jews, they were the righteous people. They were the holy people. They were the people who God had chosen. They were God's special people, and God gave them the law. And if they obeyed this law, they were the set-apart people who would reveal the character of God. And so they could take identity and confidence in the fact that we're the people of God. So all of everyone else who's around us, like, who are you guys? You're the heathens, you know? We're the people of God. Well, when in their, at the best, in their, in their best moments, what the Jews did was exactly what God wanted them to do, which was that they walked in accordance with the law in great ways and their hearts yearned for God. And, and, and you watch people like David and God said that they were to be a blessing to all nations. 
And if they were in pursuit of God and if they were honoring God, then they were blessing all the nations around them. And when you see people like David, you see that. You see a blessing happening to other nations through the people of Israel. But most of the time, and certainly by the time of Christ, the religious leaders didn't reveal that kind of like love and affection for people outside of, uh, of Judaism. You know, instead, you see the self-righteousness, right? That there, again, there's that we are winners. And so we're more holy and we're more righteous because we obey the law more than the next person. And we're the ones who have the law. And all of you guys are the guys who don't have the law. That was the Jews. Then there was the Gentiles. You think the Gentiles sat back and thought like, oh man, the Jews got it together and they're the ones who are the people of God and we're just the slackers. You know, we're the losers. No. They're like, are you kidding me? Have you heard of Rome? What's Jerusalem? I don't know anything about Jerusalem. Have you heard of Rome? We built all the roads in this world. We have the military force that can conquer everything. Have you heard of Athens? Have you heard of Greece? We're the intellectual, you know, mind blowers of our world. And so they're not sitting back think, feeling bad because they're not the holy rollers. They're, they're on a different game. You know, they're in a completely different game. They're the successful ones, the powerful ones, the wealthy ones. And they look at the Jews like, who are you? Who are you? And these two different worlds, these two different games, and they're each winners in their own world. And what happens is, is a massive divide between these people. Massive divide. However, what did Paul say the church was? It was those who have died to their own unique identities, and they have been reborn in Christ. And so since all there is now is Christ, therefore... Therefore, and he says, since you were, you were formerly in these different camps, and then he gets to verse 13, and watch verse 13. He says, but now, okay? Therefore, you were this way. You were separated. You were playing different games. You were on different planes. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You see, Jesus changes things. He changes the way our identity works because uh, in Christ, he completely redefines us from the ground up and he redefines us from the spirit out. And since he redefines us on such a deep level, it changes how we relate to each other. Let me give you another example and forgive me another sports example. Um, there was two uh, guys moving from Serbia to uh, immigrants to the U.S. from Serbia. And huge basketball fans. They played basketball when they were in Serbia. They were buddies. But they moved to the States. One of them moves to Boston. One of them moves, moves to L.A. Okay? And so they become basketball fans in their respective cities. There's the Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go, buddy. And they, uh, the, the Lakers and Celtics, one of the greatest basketball rivals of all time, you know? And they love their teams and they find identity in their teams and you watch them every time the championship comes around and they're playing each other there's stuff all over Facebook they're on the phone with each other and they're slamming each other for their they're talking trash and everything and they're taking identity in their teams and they do this every year until four years go by and all of a sudden there's the Olympics and something changes all the Serbian basketball players from the NBA, they go and start playing for Serbia in the Olympics. And now they're playing against these players who they normally root for in Boston and L.A. And now, instead of being fans of these players who play for Boston and L.A. who are playing for the U.S., now all of a sudden, these guys who are bitter rivals are all of a sudden on the same team, cheering for the same team because there's a deeper level of identity. It's not about the city they're living in. It's about the country they're from. And it's a much deeper level of identity. And this is what's happening in this text 
where Paul's saying he's appealing to them. You may have been a Gentile. You may have been a Jew. You might be a successful businessman or you might be a beauty queen or you might be not winning on any game you're in. And it doesn't really matter because we're getting to the great common denominator. We're getting to the human spirit redeemed by Christ. You are no longer identified by any of those things. You are identified by being in Christ. And it tears down the barrier. You see, it's only in Jesus comes in and he's completely different. He's mind-boggling. This is the thing that blows our minds about Jesus is that Jesus comes in and he doesn't compete. He doesn't play a game. There's no game to Jesus. He doesn't play a game. He's not in a competition. He's not trying to win. Does that look like winning the cross? Well, it does now, but it didn't then. He decided to lose. He decided that he was going to come in and he was going to lose. Why? Because he wasn't interested in winning a competition to be something special. He was interested in loving his family. Because he didn't see life and humanity as a great competition in which you have to achieve. He was completely secure in who he was. He didn't have to prove himself or win something in order to be assured some place in the minds of other people. He didn't really care what they thought. He cared about their lives and he cared about them. And he wanted them to do better. So he had to lose so that we could win. And so he wanted us to be a family instead of wanting it to be a competition. And so he changes the whole thing. And all of our silly games... They just look really silly when we look at the cross. They look very, very silly when we look at the life of Jesus. All the things that we want to identify ourselves and find value about ourselves in, they look really, really silly when you look at the cross. Jesus decides to die. The greatest of all decides to die because he wants family. He wants us to be family, to find identity in being a family. He changes it from the very core, at the very core. You see... It's only in faith in Christ that we can get, that the barriers can be broken down so deeply that no matter what has divided us, he can get to a deeper level of identity that can unify us. You see, each one of us, we're identified. We have taglines, you know, like, it's, it's like if you put a description of yourself, if someone asked for a bio of you, if you go to our website, when it goes to describing the, the church staff, we just have these words, you know, that they're just little words. It's like a word mosaic that's supposed to describe who we are. And they're these little snippets that identify who we are. And each one of us, if we wrote a bio of ourselves, there's these little words, you know, that can identify us, that can put us in camps. You know, we could talk about our nationality. We could talk about our age. We could talk about our interests. We could talk about whatever it is that puts us in a certain camp, and that's supposed to identify who we are. But see, what happens in Christ is he gets all the way down to the, to the deepest common denominator of all mankind, the DNA of the human spirit, and he says right there, we are dead and we are in deep need of salvation. And when we come to know him, we lose that personal identity and we are found in Christ. And what happens in that moment is not only are we now members of Christ, but we are members of the family of God. And we are no longer just, we now are pieces of the body of Christ and we are members in a family. And that family is not designated by human descent. It's not designated by my physical DNA or my nationality or any of those things. It comes and he unifies us on a much deeper level, which is a spiritual identity, that I am a redeemed child of the living God. And this is who I am now. And if you are that too, then we're brothers and sisters, and it changes how we relate to one another. We're not in competition anymore. There's no competition. 
It's a beautiful thing. Verse 14 says this. Read the beginning of verse 14 with me. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one. He himself is our peace. I love that. And I want you to think about that with me for a second. He himself is our, is our peace. There's a movement happening all across our world, and especially across the Western world right now, that seeks to, this is the philosophy. We want peace, and we want unity. And there's this call for tolerance, where we learn to take the truth of all of the rules of each of our games and find the commonality in them and figure out how to play nice together in the sandbox. It's like if the Super Bowl and the, and the, and the World Series are being played at the same time, what we should do is find things that are in common about it, and we should, like, pitch a football and hit it with a baseball bat, you know? Like, and that's actually what's going on in our world right now, is we're trying to find the places. People are trying to find the places where we have stuff in common, and we can work together with those things in common. And we hear about that in religion all the time, in faith, about the syncretism of different religions. And, you know, it's, there's a real, you've probably heard the phrase, the religion of Oprah, you know, and that's kind of that mentality of like, whatever your faith is, there's one basic common teaching that all, all faiths have, and it overlaps. And if you can let go of the details and the nuances that, that separate us and, and hold on to the common teachings we, we hold, then we can be on the same squad and we can be playing the same game. And, and that's, but there's a problem. There's the problem. And here's the problem. And the problem is that we don't look to the teachings of Jesus primarily. That's not what we need the most, right? The teachings of Jesus aren't what we need the most. I need the blood of Jesus. That's what I need. Honestly, I need the blood. See, when people say that they can unify us by just getting us all on the same page, what it says is if we work hard enough, we can let go of our own unique identities and learn to be one and be partners and, and be, you know, real good global people who learn, global neighbors who learn to interact with each other in a nice, kind way. And we stop thinking about just ourselves and we care about other individuals. I have this buddy who I interacted with in Chicago and he had been raised Roman Catholic and then he uh, became a Zen Buddhist. And he was like, you know, Tim, I think that people in Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism, practice Christianity better than most Christians do. And I said, okay, why don't you explain that to me? And he said, sure. Um, He said, this is the philosophy. The philosophy is that we all have our own egos, okay? And what kills us is that we all have our own egos and we're all concerned about ourselves, and if we can get past our own egos and we can start to, to, to just meditate on the greater humanity and, and gr- meditate on the greater life force, then we'll stop thinking about ourselves and we'll start investing into other people and care about other people. He said, that sounds like the message of Jesus to me. And he's like, and frankly, I'm working really hard at that. Fair enough on one level. I mean, fair enough that the fact that that is truly in some ways the message of Jesus, isn't it? that we get to a place where we're one, the way he and the Father are one, where we get past ourselves and we begin to love another individual. The only problem is, is in this world of syncretism, we're never offered a way to get past ourselves. We're never offered a plan. It's just learn to lower your standards about your own unique doctrine and learn to see eye to eye with other people and just kind of be okay with what they're doing and we'll learn to get along. That doesn't actually get me past myself. 
It really doesn't. It says that we should be able to get along, and it's, it's all a good idea, and the teaching and the philosophy is all there. But it's not just the teaching of Jesus that I need. It's the blood of Jesus that I need. I actually need to die. I'm a selfish person. And just having a, being able to get the same rules with someone else or, or think on the same uh, ideas of teaching, it doesn't get me to a place where I actually can get past myself and be a selfless human being who really cares about other people and becomes one with others. All it does is it says, I have to work really hard at not being selfish. So I'm going to not be selfish. I'm going to not think about myself. I'm going to think about others. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that. So I've got to think about how I can do that. You know, and all I'm doing is sitting there focusing more on myself, trying to figure out how I can be the solution to the problem of focusing on me. And it's absolutely ridiculous. It's an absurd philosophy that we're buying hook, line, and sinker all across our world right now, that what we need to do is think less about ourselves and think about others. And who does that depend on? Me. So I have to focus on me to get it done. It's crazy. It's cyclical thinking that doesn't get us anywhere. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. You just can't do it. What you actually need is a savior who comes in and changes the whole game who dies on a cross and spiritually takes us and brings us into the grave and then resurrects us and makes us new people he actually transforms us from the inside out he changes who we are and he gets us past ourselves so that we can actually care about another individual I was at Jen and I, uh, when we celebrated our anniversary this week, we went to, the, we went to uh, the art museum, Philadelphia Art Museum, and saw the whole Rembrandt. I don't know if you've seen, like Rembrandt's uh, Faces of Christ are on display there. And there's these, Rembrandt has these amazing paintings of Jesus. And he, he showed the picture of, he, he painted a picture of Mary and Martha, where, the, you know, Mary is the one who's hanging out with Jesus, and Martha is the one who's, uh, you know, doing her work or whatever. And it's hilarious because... It's just after, like, enlightenment and all of that, and, the, and there's been, uh, everything has changed in our world, and it's the modern era where studying is all what your faith is about. Everyone now is starting to learn to read, and the more you can understand the scriptures and all of that, the more you will know Jesus. So they have this picture, and Jesus is sitting at a table, and Mary's sitting at the table, and they have the Bible open, and they're reading the Bible, like they're studying. And I never pictured that before. You know what I mean? Of like the time with Mary, I picture like Mary hanging out, interacting with Jesus relationally. But his picture was like they were studying the Bible. Because in that moment, there was this huge awakening happening across our globe where people could actually read and have the text in their hand. And so for him, it was this great, and, and that's a beautiful thing. But sometimes we believe that the teachings of Jesus are what we need. And it's not the teachings of Jesus that we need. It's Jesus that we need. And we, need, we only know him through the scriptures. Believe me, we value these scriptures on, on levels that it's hard for me to even explain. But the reason is because in them we find Jesus. Jesus is revealed in here. But I still have to relate to him personally. I still need his blood shed for me. And when he comes and when I interact with Jesus, something changes inside of me. You see, uh, as soon as I begin to receive the blood of Christ as the substitution for my sin, what happens is, is something changes quickly. It changes not just in me, but it changes how I view everyone else. It changes my perspective on relationship and my perspective on love. It has to. The scriptures have taught this from the beginning, haven't they? The Ten Commandments, the first four Ten Commandments are about our relationship to God. The second six of the Ten Commandments are all about our relationship to other people. 
when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, what did he say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. They're intrinsically linked. This is why when you read 1 John, he says, how do you know that you love God? By how you love your brothers and sisters. How do you know if you love your brothers and sisters? By how you love God. And it's just, they're so deeply linked that one results in the other. We love because he first loved us. There's a, when he comes and we find ourselves in Christ, it changes the whole game and it changes the way we, re we relate to each other. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's an abandonment of ourself to love God. And then what happens is, right after it, is we love our neighbor, what? As ourself, because we see them as part of us. It changes the way we see things. Listen, this is how it works. Let me explain how the gospel works psychologically, what happens inside of us. This is, this is the critical point. I mean, if, if you want to see how it is that this thing works, Paul says right here in Ephesians, when he's trying to get them to to be more and more in Christ so that they can be more and more in one another. This is what he says in, in chapter 3. Skip all the way down to verse 14. And he says, for this reason, so in other words, toward this end, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power, through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What is it that Paul's trying to do? He's trying to get them to be filled with love. Filled with love. Because the whole reason we fight in the competition with each other is because we're not full, because we're empty, and we need more identity and more legitimacy. So I gotta get ahead here. I have to do better here in order to feel better about myself. And he's like, I have one prayer. And it's that you would understand what this gospel means. And not just understand it intellectually, but in your inner man, that you would know the fullness of God's love. That you would inside begin to feel like a child of God instead of feeling like an orphan who is unloved and needs to prove himself. That in the core of who you are, you would begin to feel loved by the Father God. And when you do, it changes the game. It's no longer a game. It's a family. It changes how it all works. I went to this conference last week right before Sutara up in Manhattan. And it was, um, it was a great conference. It was spectacular. But one of the things they did is they, they published this this, they, they sent us an app on our phone that published a, a list of the people who were participating in the conference. It was only about 100 people in this conference. And uh, every one of these people, according to uh, worldly terms of success, were very successful. You know, I'm in a room with about 100 other people, and all of them had written a bunch of books or had screenplays and, and cinemas that, uh, like films that did well, or they were pastors of multi-site mega churches or whatever, you know, they, all this stuff going for them. And I got to be honest, you know, when I first read through the list, I was like, oh man, you know, and, uh, and there's a temptation. There's a temptation in that moment to, to gauge myself 
based on everyone else in the room, you know? And my own, and just to be intimidated. And so the question is, when I go to this conference and I go and I sit down, am I going to feel like I have something to prove or something to hide? Or am I going to feel that I am a loved child of God who has something to offer? Because God made me unique and God made me special and God loves me intensely. And whatever I've succeeded, succeeded in, whatever I've achieved or what I haven't achieved, that's no longer the identifier of who Tim Deering is. It's no longer the identifier for any of us. The identifier is that we are in Christ. And if that is true, then all those other barriers need to be let go. And what we're told is what Paul's trying to say is I want you desperately to feel the love of God that comes through the shed blood of Christ. Because as you own that, as you begin to live within it, it changes the whole landscape of relationships. And it changes how, what the, the power that's available to us to actually sacrificially love another. I'm filled with love. I don't need your love. Now I can offer you my love. You know? So I come into a community not just in a place of need, but in a place of being able to bless and being able to give. Now listen, there's one last deception that's at work, one other deception that's at work around us that I, I need to tip us off about. Um, and that's this. It's that this relationship with Christ, this identity in Christ, this gospel um, of being about in Christ is something that, uh, that I can do on my own. Last, week, last time, last message that we did on the church, I had the whiteboard up here. And we kind of dissected chapter one. And we said that God has a, a grand purpose you re anybody remember what the purpose is? <laughs> to spread his glory. To spread his glory. He has a plan for how to spread his glory. Anybody remember what that is? To make a glorious people. And he has a choice as to who it is who he's going to make his glorious people. And who, what did the text say the choice was? Us. Us who are hearing the message. So his great plan is to spread his character, to reveal his glory, to spread his kingdom. And the way he's going to do that is by making a beautiful, glorious people who look like him, who reveal his character. And his choice for that is us. And we said the problem is, is that we can't actually accomplish it, so there needs to be a provision. And the provision is Jesus, right? And, and we see the cross, and, and we see that Jesus is the only way for us to get there. So here's the point, is that if we get in Christ but we don't become a glorious people, then we haven't actually accomplished the purpose. And so let, let me put it this way. We can be, at Parker Ford Church, we call ourselves PFC, Parker Ford Church, and we say that we are people following Christ. PFC, people following Christ. However, we had to make a change to that, and we had to put a little modifier right in front of it. It's a little one-letter word. What is it? A. We're not just people following Christ. We're a people following Christ. And there's a huge, huge difference because God wants to reveal his glory and he can reveal his glory through individuals, but it only goes so far. It's great if you find a person who's doing good stuff and they take the scriptures and they're living by biblical principles and they're reading the scriptures in the morning and they're having a good relationship with God. That's an awesome thing. And for years, for decades, for generations, for centuries, what people actually believed about the church is that all it was was that if you become a member of the church, the institution, then you 
have a relationship with God. So you have to become a member of the church. You go through this ceremony like we had up front this morning. And if you become a member of the church, now you have a relationship with God because you're connected to the church. There, there's a whole re- renewal of theology that said, no, that's not enough. I actually have to have a personal relationship with God. I have to get to the place where my personal identity is found in Christ. And I can get into this word on my own and I have to pray and I have to interact with God. And all of that has been extremely helpful. But there's another problem that's emerged now and it's a pendulum swing. And like I said, we live in an independent place and it shapes our faith and it shapes how we relate to each other. And this is what's happened. I hear it all over the place. I hear it from people constantly. They got their Bible. They go to church on a Sunday morning. They got their faith locked down. They're in a walk with God. I'm good to go. I'll see you guys next Sunday. I'm out. We cannot reveal the glory of God that way. Because the whole masterpiece of God is to reveal a family that has his DNA that cares about one another more than they care about themselves. You see, the whole point isn't just to have people following Christ and a bunch of blocks uh, lying all around the floor that are not mortared together. You see, what it says right here in, 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 uh, chapter, in chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. There's only one way for the for it truly to be a temple. There's only one way for the Spirit to really dwell in it. There's only one way for this thing to be a masterpiece that glorifies God. And it doesn't happen by a bunch of stones that are honoring God. It happens when those stones are built together to become a house, a family in which God dwells. There's a counter-reaction that's happening that's radically individual in faith where people are leaving the church in droves and people are using church to show up and get a fix for their own personal spiritual life, but they're not joining a family. They're not joining a community. Paul is teaching us here that, yes, what the church is is those who are in Christ, but if you are in Christ, you will be in community. And if you are not in community, then here's the memo. You are not in Christ. You cannot say that you love God and not love your brothers and sisters. He needs to reshape and redefine how we do life. And we are battling and warring and waging war against the culture of independence when he says that we are to be interdependent, that we are connected and formed to be one. He only makes you and me one little slice and it only makes sense when it comes together. And unless we come together, we have not been able to receive and reveal the full glory of God. His purpose is not just to change me. His purpose is to make us his family in which he reveals himself. And it's a beautiful picture. And I don't know how to get there. Believe me, I don't know how to get there. It's actually not even my job to get us there. It's the Holy Spirit's job to get us there. As individuals, we have to yield our own identities and be found in Christ, and let go of our own competitions and all of our stuff. And when we do, it'll change the way we see each other. And as we, and as we find ourselves in Christ, we don't have to ask if we're winners or losers. See, we have one job, is to believe that he's already won, and we're in him. 
And so my identity is not in whether or not I win at this or win at that or whatever. My identity is not even which game I play. My identity is simple and it's plain that he's the winner and I'm found in him. And when the father looks at me, he sees his son who's amazing and he sees me as a part of it. And you know what? He sees you as part of that too. And if I'm filled to the measure with God and with his love, then I'm free to actually begin to look at you and think about what's going on in your life and how to care for you. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's glory spreading but it's intensely deep conviction when I read this passage and understand where we are as a people. God, help us to become a people. God, help us to become a people. Let's pray.